Great, we're talking about the book of Colossians. That's where we're at. And sometimes when you do expository preaching verse by verse, it can maybe feel uh, less exciting. But believe me, God's word, when you dig into it, it's always exciting. There's always something there. No matter how many times you've read these verses. And this passage is a little bit obscure. I was kind of tempted just like to fly past it and get to Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Because that's like the, oh, being rooted and what does that mean and what does that look like? Alas, we'll have to wait till next week to be rooted. So a few things about Colossians. We don't have a bookshelf out here, but we've got our digital bookshelf and you can see Colossians there. It's one of Paul's letters. And in Paul's letters, it kind of goes um, largest to smallest and, and in its arrangement. And there's some kind of interesting things about the arrangement. You have first and uh, you have Romans, and then you have first and second Corinthians, and then you have these smaller, shorter books. And so uh, there's four of these shorter books that just kind of feel like they're a little, little bit together. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. There's a lot of overlap in the content of these books. Paul is writing many of the same things to these, these churches in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. So how do you remember where these, the order of these books? Go eat popcorn, right? Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you get close by and you're like, wait a second, I'm at Philippians, where am I at? Go eat popcorn. Oh, it's just the one right afterwards. That's free. You're welcome. Um, How do you divide the book of Colossians? Super easy. Chapters 1 and 2 is doctrine. This is the things you need to know about God, yourself, and the world. And chapters 3 and 4, here's how you live it out. Okay, so we're currently in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 this morning. So we're still talking about doctrine, uh, but we're starting to understand Paul is starting to talk about why he wrote this letter. So that's what's happening. Now I found some fun cartoons to show you. They're not moving pictures, they're just pictures, right? So you've got Paul in a Roman prison and Epaphras, who is the one who started the work in Colossae, we believe, he comes to tell Paul, Paul, got some stuff going on, need some help. Because you are the one who is planting these churches and probably Epaphras came to Christ um, at Ephesus when Paul was there. And so then Epaphras, uh, Epaphras has been doing ministry in Colossae and nearby Laodicea. They're about 10 miles away. What's going on? Well, he says, well, there's two groups in the church. I would say these days there's like 50 groups in the church, right? I mean, there's like, we can be so splintered. But you've got these uh, Gentiles, they're non-Jews, and they're maybe into philosophy and maybe angel worship and other things that we'll talk about in the next couple weeks. And then you've got these Jewish folks that have come to Christ, but they're like, no, we've got to be very Jewish in what's going on. And there's kind of a division between them. And so although they're all a part of the body of Christ, they are then kind of separated and in disagreement. You can't imagine ever a church having any kind of disagreement or following of Jesus not getting along, but it just used to happen. You just have to take my word for it. And along the way, there's this little verse in um, 1 Corinthians 10. It says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So uh, why did I pull that out? Because I believe there's three groups, at least here in Colossians, that we're seeing. The Jews, which I just mentioned. There, You can think of them as the, as the um, the religious right, if you will. The Greeks who maybe are like more of the liberal left. 
But then there is the church of God, which is above all those things and all those differences. And the truth is the church of God in Ephesians, Paul lets us know that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That the church of God trumps any of the divisions in the church, whether Gentile or Jew. And in this book, Paul's saying, look, there is one body. We are not divided. We are to actually step into the place uh, of being in the church of God, which is far above all other divisions. So, check mark, marks. And so here is Paul and Timothy. Timothy's in the, um, in the brown slash orange shirt, uh, doing a little writing, writing this letter. Along the way, we see this, this phrase in Paul's letters. Ecclesia. I did a little extra study this morning. Um, ecclesia sometimes is, they just say it's church. Bad translation. Paul actually kind of makes up this word. It means called out ones. The ones that have been called out of the world and into the kingdom of light. Rescued from the dominion of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light. So, it's a gathering or an assembly. We even see this in, the, in the, old, the copy of the Old Testament that was written in Greek. We see this as a gathering. When Israel comes together, they're an ecclesia. They're a gathering of called out ones. They're not supposed to look like all the other nations of the world. We're called out ones. We're not supposed to look like the world. And so in this, we see this used in a few ways. We see in Romans, it talks about all of the parts of the body. And it's important for us not to say we have no need of each other, but we, we work together as a body. That's how Romans talks about the ecclesia. Um, Ephesians talks about the body, and, and it refers to the head, but it really is more about the body of Christ being equipped and raised up. Colossians emphasizes the head, which is Jesus. And it's beautiful that as you read the whole counsel of God, all these different books of the Bible, you get different flavors or, or different angles of the same thing. And so here in Colossians, the main truth that I think Paul's trying to say is Jesus the head is the source of all of our life. He's the one that is above all things. He's the one that brings the rest of the body, though we are like a teenage boy, not realizing how long our arms are and knocking over the milk, he can pull us together, and under him, then we can be the body of Christ and work together and have this true life to the fullest. And so, it's a beautiful metaphor. By the way, um, I did some reading this week about uh, the Roman body politic. In other words, in the Roman Empire, uh, it was, the empire was called the soma, or the body, and the emperor would be the head. Once again, this language is this very subversive, saying Jesus is the head and we are his body. Kind of fun. All right. So, we're in the end of Colossians 1. And we're going to pick it up with verse 24. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Let's pause right there. Have you ever heard anyone say, I'm so thankful I'm suffering? Every once in a while, you'll meet like a really mature Christian who's been reading a lot of Paul, and they might say that. Most of us wouldn't say that. We'd say, oh, Lord, help. And that's okay. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is 
still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. If you're like me, when you read this verse, you're like, you say, what, Paul? What does this mean? Well, lots and lots of opinions on what this means, but let's just, let's interpret this in light of the entire book and the content that just preceded it in this subversive poem in verses 15 through 20 about the supremacy of Christ and the whole counsel of God, what we know. What do we know? We know Jesus is in all, created all things. He's supreme over all beings, all things, all problems. There is nothing lacking in Jesus. So you're not going to read this verse and go, man, Paul's filling in where Jesus like blew it. Nope. We know that's not true. And then there's some that'll say, well, if you, if you look at some of the, the, the Jewish writings of that time, they thought that they had to suffer. And then, and then if they suffered enough, then God would do something. No, that doesn't fit with the context either. So what's happening here? Well, I believe this is, and we are going to talk about suffering in a minute. I believe that this is all about the idea that Paul realizes that if he's got to suffer for the church, he's willing to lay down his rights. He's willing to suffer on their behalf because he loves them so much. And God's story has always been a suffering story. You read Isaiah 53 and it talks about a Jesus who will come, the suffering servant. Jesus didn't have it easy. I would argue that there was a lot of suffering in his life. He was God. He didn't sin and yet he suffered. Why? Because he lives in a world that have certain laws and things like that, laws of nature and then free will that God's given us. And so even Jesus suffered And he learned obedience through suffering, the Bible says. So suffering, it's so interesting in our culture. We just think suffering is always bad. Suffering bad. And in fact, you would say, we only suffer because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Well, yes, suffering and pain and evil are an outflow of sin. But I don't have to rely on their sin. I I mess it up plenty myself. I open a lot, plenty of doors for the Lord for, for the enemy to come in and mess with my life. I don't want to, but if I'm honest. So what's happening here is in, in different passages, Paul will talk about suffering as a badge of his apostleship. He talks about a thorn in his flesh, something that he suffers with, and yet God is, his grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes the Lord wants to actually work his greatest moments of breakthrough when we are the weakest. Why? Because then we're out of the way. Is suffering always bad? I think biblically I can strongly stand on the word and say no. Paul is saying I'm, I'm suffering. I'm, I'm in there with Jesus like Jesus I was suffering. Oh and by the way you the body, you will suffer as well. It doesn't mean you're called to suffer. It just means that you will suffer if you live in this world. Jesus said, you will have troubles in this life. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, says this, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involved. In other words, we live in a world where gravity is still gravity. If you do certain things, you're going to get certain certain results, right? And your free will means you've got the choice to do the right thing or the wrong thing. Why? Because God didn't want to create robots. He wanted to give us free will so that we would have the choice to love him or not. 
by the way, this does not take away miracles. Miracles then goes over the top, and this is where God intervenes, right? So, try to exclude the possibility of suffering, which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involved, and you find that you've excluded life itself. This is the way it must be. With Paul, when he comes to Christ, Ananias is the man that is tapped on the shoulder and says, you go help him. Now, Paul has been knocked on the ground and he is stumbling around. He's got scales on his eyes. He can't see anything. And Ananias is like, no, wait a second. He's the one who kills Christians. This can't be the Lord. Maybe I'm not hearing from the Lord. And the Lord's like, no, this is me. And what does God say? Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and their kings, and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Oh. You mean sometimes God allows suffering? All the time. But why would he do that? God's such a mean God. It's all supposed to be like all rosy and everything's supposed to be beautiful all the time. No, no, that's heaven. That's where we're going forever. And the good news is the time that you spend in heaven will far outlast this little tiny dot of time where you are now suffering. Peter, especially in his letters, writes about this. You suffer for a little longer. God's got you. There was a Jewish... um, line of thinking, which is all suffering is a part of death. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, was Paul's physical life threatened along the way? Sure. Did they try to kill him multiple times? Yeah. Did they actually succeed once and he came back? I think so, if I remember that one passage in Acts. But So there is this suffering that happens. My friends in the um, dictionary of Paul in his letters says this, Paul's willingness to suffer on behalf of his churches provides a model of Christian love so that Paul could call his churches to follow his example of giving up their rights for others, even when it meant undue suffering and hardship. I want to challenge you, friend, that sometimes we think that we're supposed to hold on to our rights, but Jesus did not consider equality a thing to be, with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He let go of his rights, even of being God. And sometimes I think we, we do too much fighting for what we believe is right for us, instead of saying, I'm willing to sacrifice because I want to love Romans 3, here's the benefit of suffering. Paul says it in Romans 5. I'm sorry, Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. We also glory in our sufferings. What? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, this resiliency. Character, character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Last thing on suffering. C.S. Lewis again says this, I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. This is so countercultural to what we know in America. We think, oh no, I follow God because I don't want to suffer. Guess what? 
you'll probably suffer more if you follow Jesus. Newsflash. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. That word perfect, by the way, we're going to see it in our passage here in a few minutes. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Colossians 1, verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. What is this word servant? Fancy word. Oikonomos. It's where we get the word economics. And this is someone who is a manager of a household or household affairs. They superintend all things. They're the head of a house. And so this is a, a really like a, a privilege to be the head of a house. This is not the lowest servant. This is someone who has been entrusted with this precious thing. So Paul's saying, I've been entrusted with this incredible, incredible calling. And what is that calling? I'm glad you asked. To proclaim the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to God's people. What is this mystery? We've got to keep reading. To them, God has chosen to make known this mystery uh, among the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is hearkening back to earlier in the chapter where it says our, our faith and our hope are built uh, no, sorry. Our faith and our love are built on hope. And what kind of hope? Not just wishing, but hope knowing that my, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Myself will be in heaven with my friends, Jim and Marianne, who we celebrated this week. My hope is in the Lord. The hope of someday being in glory with him. This is the mystery. So, cartoons. So we are in Christ. Um, I think my count was like, think 164 times Paul says this in his letters. And it's actually more than that if you count all the rest. Being in Christ. Um, the verse that I think about when I see that we are in Christ is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. There is this create, divine creative activity that happens in the life of a person when we surrender to Jesus. We become a Christian. And the death of the old creation, dominated by the spiritual forces, the dark forces, is replaced with this emergence of a new person, a new creation in which everything is Christ-centered. This concept of being hidden in Christ is so powerful in Paul's letters. And so I have a few of the, my little succulents from my office here. They probably need water really bad. But when we think about being in Christ, it's not like being in the, like, I'm, I'm in the dome right now. Well, that's, that's spatial. 
But being in Christ is like this little branch right here is connected and it's in the plant. It's organically connected. You wouldn't say this is not the plant. You would say, nope, it's, it's in the plant. It's all connected. And by the way, John 15 talks about abiding and that he is the vine and we are the branches. This is not exactly a vine, but the concept is still true. That there is an organic connection that we have to Jesus, uh, which that organic connection has a true spiritual reality, which is life-changing, life-giving, and eternal life-producing. Springs of living water flowing from our insides. We are in Christ, those of us who have given our lives to Jesus. But this mystery is the other side of it too, that it is Christ in us. So that's why this cartoon is kind of cool, right? So we are in Christ, but he is in us. Do you see that? And now, maybe you could think about it this way. The pail is in the ocean. The ocean is actually filling the pail as well, right? Both can be true. It's a mystery. So why is this a mystery? This seems like it would be very plain. Everyone in the first century would know this. Let's keep reading. Jesus, he is the one we proclaim. We admonish. We teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is the word perfect, by the way. And perfect in this context doesn't mean without flaw, although it is true that Jesus forgives us completely, and in God's eyes, we get his righteousness, therefore we're perfect. That is true. However, the meaning of this word is, we're helping people grow and mature so that they will fulfill your purpose. Doesn't it feel great to think about having a purpose for your life? There's been books and all sorts of different things created to help you find your purpose. Do you know what your purpose is? Why are you still on the earth? Because God's not finished with you yet. I mean, part of that prophetic word was really for some of our oldest saints. And that you have bought the lie that your best years are behind you. I don't believe that's true. And I don't think that's what the Lord's saying either. And it's about your relationships. It's about what you will pour into someone else. Some of you have poured into me and your legacy will run through me and every single person that I'm able to touch and minister to. You have exponentially increased the impact of your life because you poured into me. And not just me, into others. But since I'm standing here, I'll use myself as an example. Fulfilling your purpose will bring you life to the fullest. We exist to experience and share the life to the fullest that Jesus came to give us. That's our mission statement. That's our purpose statement here at Neighborhood Church. And part of that is helping you understand what is your purpose. Helping you determine what your gifts and your calling, your passions are, and knowing that those all flow into your purpose. But the very first thing, about fulfilling your purpose has to do with proclaiming, admonishing, and teaching everyone and not being ashamed of this gospel. 
Some of us have become very ashamed of the gospel in recent years because we're afraid that if we speak boldly about Jesus, we'll be spit out by others. We'll get in trouble at work. Someone will be uncomfortable. Oh, God forbid that someone's uncomfortable. Oh, but I'm just warming them up so that someday I can tell them I'm a Christian. It's not working, friend. It's not working. You warming them up is not warming them up. It's just going to make them more confused later when they find out you're a Christian. They're like, wait, why haven't you told me? You've been my next door neighbor for how long and you're now getting around to this? More on that in a minute because we're going to go somewhere with this passage. Colossians 1.29, to this end, proclaiming, helping others to grow, to fulfill their, their purpose, right? You guys tracking with me? To this end... I will strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Agonizomai. Do you hear agony in there? Agonizomai. I am going to, this is a wrestling word, right? If you've ever wrestled someone, it usually takes all of your strength to maybe be successful. I'm generally not successful in wrestling. This word is used again later in the book. Fast forwarding to Colossians 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who was one of you, and a servant, there's that servant word again, of Christ Jesus. He sends greetings. He is always wrestling. How's he wrestling? In prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature, here's our word again, and fully assured. Agonizomai. But guess what? Next verse. We got it again. I want you to know, by the way, the, the chapter divisions were not written in by Paul. Those were put in later, like hundreds of years later. So sometimes they're helpful and sometimes just cross them out, throw them away, Right? God bless them for trying to help us. Colossians 2.1. I want you to know how hard I am contending. Aguna. Guess what? Same word. Different, different tense. Thank you, Ed. Words are hard sometimes. I'm contending for you and all those at Laodicea. What do you think he means? Contending in prayer. This is what I believe it means. Can't prove it. Pretty sure in the context of the letter makes sense. And for all who have not met me personally. So Paul didn't know all these people. In fact, there's a lot of evidence to think that he hasn't been there yet. We're going to see later in the, in the remarks at the end of the, the book, he's like planning on making a, a trip there. That's what he wants to do if he can get out of jail. Let me just remind you of a key verse earlier in this chapter because context is so important in understanding and interpreting the Bible correctly. We don't want to misinterpret it. We don't want to make it say what we want it to say. We want its plain truth and principles to come out so that we can apply them. 1 Corinthians 1, <laughs> Colossians 1, 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Agonizomai! There is a passion in prayer and contending. I'm going to push. I'm going to pray until something happens. I'm not going to stop. 
And we're going to see this concept in one of my favorite verses, spoiler alert, in chapter 4, where it says, devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. If you live out that verse, your whole life will change. Why? Because we don't pray enough. I don't know who you are. I don't know what, I don't follow you around. You don't pray enough, nor do I. What does God want to do? Immeasurably more than I can ask, think, or imagine. How, how is he going to do that? With me partnering with him and going after these things and contending for breakthrough. Well, we prayed for it once. I guess that's enough. One of the things that I learned in, in healing prayer ministry as I traveled overseas um, once doing this with our friends is that you could pray. So I'll just tell you a story. So a woman in Denmark comes up and, and I'm standing there and I'm not praying for anybody. She says, oh, you're available. You can pray for me. She kind of had broken English. So I've got this stomach issue. Will you pray for me? Sure. Put my hand on her shoulder, prayed for her stomach issues. I said, okay, how's it feeling? She says, it feels worse. I'm like, great. My prayers are going backwards. I'm like, I did not come across the ocean to have this lady's stomach get worse. I said, can I pray for you again? Sure. Put my hand on her shoulder. Prayed for her again. How's it feeling? It might be a little bit better, but it's still there. It feels really, really bad. It's a, really, a lot of pain in my, in my stomach. Okay, I'm going to pray for you a third time. So I prayed for her a third time. How you feel? Nothing different. Most of the time by now, you're like, well, I guess God doesn't want to heal you. I guess this is just something you got to work through. I guess, oh, it's too bad. It's like, you know, I was playing the lottery and I, oh, I didn't get a match. Okay, or whatever, however the lottery works. I don't know. I've never done it before. But like, you know, it, did, it didn't work out. But I was like, no, I'm going to contend for this woman. Like, I believe that the Lord can do this. Fourth time. Can I pray for you again? Sure. I, I, don't, I don't know what she's thinking at this point because I'm not asking her because I don't want to know. It might be discouraging, right? So I just laid my hand on her shoulder. I said, Lord, you know the desire of her heart. You know what she needs. Will you please do this? In Jesus' name, amen. I said, how do you feel? She said, I think I, I can't feel anything at all. And now she's trying to make herself have pain, right? So she's kind of doing one of these things. And I'm like... I know there's a cultural barrier here, but I'm pretty sure that, like, she says, I, I don't feel any pain. I don't feel any pain. I said, really? Are you sure? Mighty man of faith, you know. <laughs> are you sure? Are you, like, what, what could you do? What, what are you going to do that you couldn't do before? Well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk around and come back. I said, okay, I'll just stand here, I guess. So, you know, people, other people are praying, and she's marching around and stuff. She comes back, I don't have any pain. There's no pain in my stomach. I said, this is amazing. Thank you, Jesus. So we prayed, held her hands, and we thanked the Lord, and away she went. The next day, she brought her whole family to me. I want you to pray for my whole family. I said, why? Because the Lord is moving. True, good point, right? She wanted to have me contend for not only her, but her family. What if I would have given up after the first time or the second time or the third time? Oh, no. She might be embarrassed that it didn't happen right away, and somehow she'll personalize it. Not going to worry about that. Why? Because the grace that we walk in, we say, you know what? This isn't about what you've done or your faith. The Lord could, he can do any of these things. Now, is faith important and good? Yeah, it is. Read all about that. So what does it look like for you to contend in prayer? What does it look like for you, here's the gutsy part, to pray for somebody this week? Out loud, when they know it. Some of you just had a panic attack. 
Some of you think that praying long is better. The Lord does not answer longer prayers more than short prayers. He doesn't. In fact, I think he loves the most honest, short, heartfelt prayers the most. Because the flowery ones feels a lot like the Pharisee standing on the corner trying to look really cool. You don't have to be good at praying. You just have to be willing. The Lord will fill it all in. What would it look like for you to pray for someone this week? Now, some of you, you might need to put the training wheels on and pray for somebody in your family. It's okay. They, they count too and they're important. So if you pray for somebody in your house and you're starting to feel a little more confident, then get on the phone. It's this thing that many of us carry in our pocket and um, it actually, you can call someone and talk to them with their voice. Not just text them. In fact, voices are beautiful to hear on the phone. And call Aunt Sally and say, Aunt Sally, my past, you can blame it on me. I'll be, I'll be your bad guy. My pastor gave me an assignment. I have to do it this week or else I'm going to go back and I'm going to feel like I didn't do my homework. So I would like to pray for you. What can I pray for? Well, I, she'll tell you. And can I just pray right now on the phone? Uh, sure. People aren't used to that. Just let them be awkward. It's okay. It's not about making them feel comfortable. I just pray for them and say, Aunt Sally, will you, will you call me back or, or you could text me if you want. And let me know, like, if something happens. Oh, sure. Now, all of a sudden, you're on assignment. Like, all right. After you pray once, now the Lord's going to keep reminding you over and over and over to keep praying. This is kind of partly what it looks like to pray continually without ceasing. And you contend for it. Let's finish the chapter because I'm out of time. Colossians 2, 2. My goal, by the way, that word is not in the Greek I love the NIV, and we're going to stick with it, but I'll just tell you when the word's not there. Because I, I was like, oh, I can't wait to see the richness of this word not there. In order that, it's a henna statement, that you might be, here's your little list. For those of you who love the list, here it is. You're going to do this because you want them to be encouraged in heart, strengthened, built up, united in love. How much do people feel loved when they're prayed for? So, they feel so loved. And so that they will have the full riches of complete understanding. All of a sudden, they're going to begin to understand who God is, who they are, and how the world works according to what God says. Four, they will know the mystery of God. We know the mystery now is namely Christ. And in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are there in him. And by the way, going to do this? And there's going to be more of this wisdom coming out later in the chapter. Why? So that you won't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. It was very common in the day for uh, philosophers to come up and use their persuasion to get you to change your mind. This is one of the reasons why Paul says, I don't speak with per pers persuasive words, if you will, but I, I want to speak with the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's some serious benefits to this. And then Paul, uh, he's writing a letter. Let me remind you. For though I'm absent with you in body, I am present with you in spirit. By the way, this is where that phrase comes from. I never knew that. I'm like, where does this I'm with you in spirit thing? I'm like, what does that mean? Like you're a ghost or something like that? No, it just means my heart is close to you. 
Like if it's, it's as if we're, we're, we're right together. As if my heart is with you. And delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is in Jesus Christ. This word discipline is a military term. Lining up and making sure that you're, you're going the right direction. So, we talked about a few things this morning. We talked about suffering. And I tried to convince you that suffering is actually can be used for God's glory and for your shaping. That might feel like a, a long reach for me to try to convince you, but I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do the convincing. I won't do the persuasive words thing. Second thing we talked about was this wrestling. How are we wrestling for others in prayer? Your assignment associated with that, go pray out loud for someone else. Can be on the phone, can be in person. You can put the training wheels on if you want. But some of you, this is going to be, this is going to give you so much faith because you, trust me, the Lord wants to show up. He's already moving. You just go join him in the work and then watch to see what he does. And your faith will just grow. Last thing. I'm going to gather the unseen group now that we've gotten through 10 days and other things. Uh, there's been a lot on the schedule here uh, sometime this month. So if you're reading this book and you haven't texted unseen to this number so that you're in the group text so I can let you know, I want to be able to do that because in the next few days, I'll set a date and a time and a place and I'll let you know where and when so that we can be together. So, and if you're in this group and you're like, I've been reading it's a little weird stuff, Andrew. I don't know. This is a little bit different. Um, this group will help you to come to it. You don't have to talk at the group if you don't want to. You can just listen to what everybody else says, okay? So it's been fun. And then my hope with this group is that uh, my professor at Talbot, I'm hoping to do a Zoom with him on this sometime later this fall if he'll say yes. And we can ask him questions about it because the author of this book is no longer alive. But it would be really fun to ask somebody who's trafficked in these things before. Will you stand? So, I don't know if you came forward this morning or you prayed with someone who came forward, but frankly, that was the highlight of church for me. Why? Because it's what the body of Christ looks like when it's submitted itself to the, to the head, Jesus. It's what it looks like to show up to church because we don't want to be a movie theater church where you don't know the people next to you. Now, you may not be their best friends yet, and you might not be in a life group, Yet, but this is what it looks like. And some of you had great emotion. My view was beautiful beyond because God was really moving and touching some of you. Some of you are under great strain and stress. And we don't want that to be a secret. At least let one other person contend for you. You saw a picture of contending right down here. Now, Here's the deal. If you prayed for someone down here, A, don't share their story. Hopefully you only got one word anyway. B, you got your prayer assignment for this week. You still have to pray for somebody else too, but I'm just saying. <laughs> so prayer folks, if you come down, some of you still need prayer and I would love to offer that. Jesus, you are the head of your body. You're the source of life. Where, where, where else will we go? You have the words of life for us. Thank you for your word that even in passages that seem obscure or don't seem like they're saying anything dramatic that you want to use them because all scripture is inspired. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're going to inspire our prayers this week. Not that they'll be on par with the Bible, but, but that you're going to inspire us by your Holy Spirit to pray for others. And so I pray for great boldness. I pray for uh, great steps of faith for this body. And, and even for those online, Lord, I pray that they would take these challenges and live them out as well. Thank you. May your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for this church body. I love this group of people, this ecclesia, these called out ones. I bless them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.